In Genesis 3.15, we have what theologians, and theologians love to make up big words that no one can understand. Uh, It's called the Proto-Evangelium. I'm sure that's probably not a word that most of you have used recently. It just means the first gospel, the first mention of the gospel. And it's when God, speaking to the serpent, says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here we have this statement that the woman's seed, which is kind of a very strange statement since it's the men who have the seed, not the women. Um, But in this case, the woman's seed would end up uh, crushing the serpent's head. But it wouldn't just be a one-sided thing. The serpent would also bruise him, this woman's seed, uh, a reference to the Messiah, on the heel. Of course, The head and the heel, they're figures of expression, but just what exactly that would mean is unclear. Yet later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 22, we get a little clearer picture of of what God is trying to do. Uh, And it's in Genesis 22 where Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son whom he loved, uh, on Mount Moriah. And he goes up there to do the deed and binds his son, puts him on the wood, pulls out the knife, and he's going to plunge it into him when the angel of the Lord cries out and says, Abraham, stop. I know now that you fear me, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And at that point, Abraham looks and he sees a ram that is caught in the thicket by its horns. And he ends up taking that ram and sacrificing the ram in substitution of Isaac. And so we begin to see this unfolding doctrine of what is called substitution. It really, the first place substitution is seen is when God kills animals to clothe Adam and Eve in the garden. It was their sin that they did, and yet an animal had to die for them to be clothed. Then there is this promise of this coming child. Then there is this picture of the ram that dies in substitution of Isaac. And of course the clearest picture is then found right after Genesis and Exodus chapter 12 and 13. Where the final uh, plague that God brings upon Egypt is the death of the firstborn. And the death of the firstborn, of course, required them to celebrate the Passover. Innocent lambs were slaughtered. Their blood then was put on the doorposts of the house so that the angel of death would pass over their house and the firstborns wouldn't die. Therefore, their firstborns were saved by substitution. And so that doctrine then is carried through all of the scripture. And God in the Old Testament, see, he commanded animal sacrifice to make substitution for sinners. The problem was, is animals cannot be perfect substitutes for people. Yet God commanded it, so for a time, people would sacrifice animals, not because the animals themselves would offer perfect atonement for sin, but because They represented or were a shadow of the ultimate Lamb of God, that human sacrifice which would come, which men could actually have sins completely forgiven and atoned for through that one 
once for all sacrifice, which of course was committed by Christ. So, for some seven and a half years now, we have looked at the life of Jesus. We've had a few short series in between. I think we're up to about 225 sermons in Luke. And um, Jesus has grown up. He has lived that perfect life. He has performed many miracles. He has been rejected. And more recently, we've seen him betrayed and tried and scourged and crucified. He is now on the altar, so to speak. And the knife of men's malice is against him, raised up against him. But this time, the father is not going to cry out that it stop. In fact, he's going to turn his head away. He's going to turn his face away from his son, his only son, whom he loves, and let him take the knife. Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. Yet even in the midst of this, as, it, as we think of it, it just seems like this huge tragedy. We need to keep in mind, as I tried to emphasize all through, that God is sovereign over this. This is not happening by accident. Even in the midst of this, unexpectedly, Jesus moved with compassion, always ready to extend grace and mercy, asks his father to forgive his persecutors. Not only that, he saves a repentant thief next to him, uh, being crucified next to him on another cross. It was as if Jesus could not leave this world without just dragging a few more into glory. He had to get him in. In fact, more than one lost sinner was saved at the time of his death, as we shall see this morning in our text. And the cross is really a sign that says, God loves sinners, or behold the love of God to sinners. That's what the cross says. So we look at our text, look at Luke 23, And follow along in your Bibles as I read verses 44 through 56. The Word of God says, It was about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and laid, it, laid him in a tomb cut into rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. 
Well, there is really a lot of things here, but what I'm going to do is break the text down into three different categories of truth. Categories about Jesus' death, categories about um, the people's response to Jesus' death, and then the final category being some information about his burial. And hopefully you will learn from these three categories uh, what Christ did for you and how you should respond to him. First, Jesus died for you. Look at verses 44 and 45. It says, Now it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon. Passover lambs were slain in the temple uh, courtyard from the ninth to eleventh hour. That is 3 to 5 p.m. Jesus is going to die right at 3 3 p.m. So just when the lambs are being executed, uh, killed, slaughtered in the temple uh, for Passover, the Lamb of God is going to die on the cross. Preceding Jesus' death, darkness, it says, fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Uh, there is this, this period of time where where darkness just reigns over the land. Uh, Luke says in verse the beginning of verse 45 that the sun was obscured. The word obscured means it failed. It wasn't shining like it normally does. And and commentators love to try and find it rational explanations for this. But give it up. I mean, it was a supernatural event. No, clouds aren't mentioned. No, it wasn't an eclipse. Eclipses don't happen at the full moon when Passover always happens. They don't happen at noon, um, which is when this started. And they only last seven minutes and 29 seconds at the most. So what was it? It was a supernatural darkening of the sun. God dimmed the sun down. He shut it down. So it became almost night in the middle of the day at high noon. And I believe God did this to testify and affirm that Jesus was the Messiah. This will become more clear as we look through the text. But look at the middle of verse 45. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. This is interesting. Remember in the temple, there was that first room, the holy place. That was two-thirds of the temple. And in there was the table of showbread and the lampstand and the altar of incense. Then in the last third was the holy of holies. And that holy of holies was closed off by a thick curtain or veil. It was only once a year that the, the high priest on the day of atonement, after offering sacrifice for himself, his family, and the people of Israel, then entered into the holy of holies to sprinkle blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That lid, uh, the flat place on the lid in between the two um, cherubim is called the mercy seat. And supposedly that's where the glory of God was dwelling. Now, what's interesting is, and this is just a whole side note, is the ark probably wasn't even in there. Um, There was no mention of the ark after the Babylonian captivity. Remember, there is the, the, uh, the statement by the prophet that the glory had departed from Israel. And uh, the ark is not mentioned, even though it mentions the th- many of the items being taken away by Nebuchadnezzar into captivity, those sacred items, it doesn't mention the ark, which tells us it wasn't taken. So where was it? Well, they probably buried it, seeing that um, they were going to be conquered by these enemies. They didn't want to fall into enemy hands. So they probably buried it. And that, of course, that gives rise to a lot of fun stuff, doesn't it? 
You know, somebody's going to find it during the tribulation or, you know, it's in the well of the souls and Indiana Jones found it or whatever. (laughs) But it probably wasn't in there, which means that for some 500 years, the high priest went in there and pretended. Interesting thought. So it could be that when that veil was torn in two, two things occurred. One specifically, first, and they have just exposed the whole fallacy that the, the ark wasn't there and atonement wasn't being made. But I think more importantly, it says it was torn in two. And Matthew says from top to bottom, which tells us that God was symbolizing something. He was demonstrating something. What? That before... Whenever a person wanted to worship God, they had to go through a priest, a mediator. The priest would then mediate between the sinner and God. So that was the priest's job, to mediate between the sinner and God. But when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, exposing the Holy of Holies, demonstrating, I think, that From now on, through faith in Christ, we have direct access to God through faith in Christ. We do not need a mediator, a human mediator, a priest, because we ourselves are priests, and Christ is our high priest who has given us access. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the priesthood is over. Any religion that has a priesthood other than just the priesthood of believers is not following the scriptures. You know, let's say that you wanted to go and look at some Rembrandt paintings at the Getty Museum. Uh, You could do that if you go during business hours and pray to to park and go through security and you could go in there and look at them. But you can't get, you know, too close. Otherwise, the alarms go off or the guys with the clubs beat you. But what if you wanted to have unlimited access? Well, if you were the curator, you could go there at off hours and you could say, hey, pull that painting down. I want to examine it in the examination room. You would have unlimited access. Well, this is how it is with Christians. Before, they could get close, but not all the way in. They didn't have unlimited access. They had to go when the priests were there. But now, through Christ, anytime you want, you can pray. You've got unlimited access to God. Anytime you want. You can, in the words of Hebrews 4.16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Anytime you want, you can say, Lord, and it's like, shh, you're in the holy place, the holy of holies, the throne of God. That is incredible. How can you do that? Because Christ, our great high priest, gave his life so that you can say, help. And you're in the presence of God. You're in the throne room of God. Hebrews 6.19 explains this this hope. We have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. He goes on to say in Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So Jesus, in giving his body, gives us access into the holy of holies. That's why you can pray to God. That's why you can confess your sins to God and you don't need to go to a priest. That's why you don't need to offer anything other uh, animal sacrifice. You just need to confess your sins directly to God and you get forgiveness. The veil was torn in two to let all of us know that anyone who puts their faith in Christ can have direct access to Jesus. It was also at this time that Matthew 27 verse 46 says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani or sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a very interesting statement. It's the only time Jesus ever addresses God as God. He usually addresses him as Father. But here he says, my God, my God, why? Because it was at that moment that all the sins of the world were bearing down upon Jesus. And the Father then broke off relationship with Christ. And for the first time in all eternity... The members, two of the members of the triune Godhead had a severed relationship. And so in Jesus' greatest hour of need, he really experienced a hell on earth. Like those in hell, he was separated from God. Like those in hell, he was suffering great pain and agony. Like those in hell, he was bearing the guilt and punishment of sin. Like those in hell, he was dying but not dead. He was experiencing the wrath of a holy God against sin upon his own self, his own person. Look at verse 46 of Luke 23. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Notice he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But somewhere between when he said that, Matthew 27, 46, and Luke, um, when he said what he is recorded in Luke 23, 46, somewhere in there, he has accomplished sin bearing. And now he goes back to the very intimate term, father. See, close, intimate terms. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. John 19, 30 says, he also said at this time, it is finished. The middle of verse 46 goes on to say, having said this, he breathed his last. The phrase breathed his last might be translated chose to die. It describes his volition. You remember what Jesus said, John 10, no one takes my life from me. Remember that? I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from the Father. And notice that Jesus When he is there on the cross, he says in a loud voice, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he says in a loud voice, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So he's not like pining away on the verge of death and they killed him and then he passes out and dies. No, he's still strong enough to cry out in a loud voice. They didn't kill him. He gave up his spirit. He chose to die of his own volition. And then in a moment, he was awake in the spiritual realm. And I'm sure all the angels were like, you know, going crazy. 
shouting and screaming and there were cheers. 33 years before that, he had left heaven, the glory which he had with his father, and he entered into the virgin's womb. And they had seen him his whole life and they saw him suffering. And now he is with them. He's not in pain anymore. And soon the penitent thief would be there that day in paradise. And we don't really know much of what happened during that time period. All we know is one little thing that he did between the time he died and the time he was resurrected on Sunday morning. And that is recorded in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So as soon as he died in the flesh, he was alive in the spirit in the spiritual realm. It says, and he went and made proclamation to spirits in prison. You're thinking, what is that? Well, especially wicked demons were cast into a place that Peter calls uses the Greek term Tartarus. It's from Greek mythology, but this isn't that, that Greek place. He's, it's a place of incarceration for extra wicked demons. You say, so why would Christ, after he dies, go to, to heaven, um, you know, see the repentant thief, and then go down there and make proclamation? What is that? Well, a pro, the word proclamation is a victory proclamation. It's really the ninner ninner speech. It's when Jesus goes down and says, ninner, ninner. You say, well, why, why would he do that? I mean, why bother? Well, because when he died, men knew he died. The holy angels knew he died. Satan and the demons who weren't incarcerated knew he died. But there was one group who needed to know that he conquered Satan, sin, and death. And so he went down there and proclaimed it to them, to the spirits in prison. The rest of the time, we don't know what he did, except that he met the repentant thief in glory. But in addition to these things happening on the other side of of this world, getting back to this world, we know some other events happen. Not only did darkness fall and the veil of the temple being torn in two, Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53 says, the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the earthquake, I mean, is understandable. The rocks being split, we know about those. But don't you just wonder about those people who after Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, other people rose too. And I know what you want to know. Who were they? What did they say? What did they know? Did they give testimony to Jesus? And the answer is, don't know, don't know, don't know. (laughs) I'm glad we're not preaching through Matthew. But the fact is, all these things occurred. J.C. Ryle, reflecting on the parallel text in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44, says, Was he flogged? It was done that by his wounds we are healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. 
Did he, did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done so that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who have done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last? And that the most painful and disgraceful of deaths, it was done so that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory, end quote. The application is pretty simple here, isn't it? Everybody has two choices. One, you repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and believe, trust in, receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Receive the free gift of eternal life, complete forgiveness of sins, and live in glory with Christ for eternity. Or you reject Christ, you refuse to turn from your sins, you refuse to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't want to submit to him, and therefore you die, you bear the consequences of your own sin in hell for all eternity. That's it. Those are the only two options. I don't care what the cults tell you, I don't care what the world tells you, those are the only two options. You've heard it from me. Those are the two options and the only two options. And every one of you will make one of those two choices. Secondly, your proper response to Jesus dying for you. Look at verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what happened, he began praising God and saying, certainly this man was innocent. This is so cool. I mean, think about this. He was praising God. What is that? I mean, think about it. Think about it. You know, I was thinking about this. Now, if I was the centurion, and the centurion is like the leader of the Romans who killed, just killed Jesus. He's the guy in charge giving the orders. The centurion begins to praise God and declares Jesus is innocent. But the praising God thing is fascinating. Why? Because let's just say for a moment that the centurion came to realize Jesus was innocent only than what he would he have felt he would have felt shame guilt remorse but that's not what he feels he feels like praising god so what does that tell us that tells us the centurion put all the pieces together that he finally understood who jesus was and what jesus did and in that moment he got a clue and believed upon Christ for salvation. I think that's what that tells us. Matthew and Mark tell us, he also said, truly this was the Son of God. You see, the centurion who was overseeing the whole thing knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He knew that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He knew that Jesus claimed to be a king. He saw Jesus tell the repentant thief, Today you will be with me in paradise, which means he knew that Jesus was claiming to be alive after death and the ability to save people. He knew all of this, and at this moment, the centurion, all of a sudden, all these pieces fit together, and it's like, wow. And he 
praises God for what God has just done at his hand. And he declares openly in public before the Roman soldiers, before all the sneers and mockers, before all the Sanhedrin, and before all the people who are going by, this man was innocent. That is incredible. That is incredible. Another man snatched out of the fire right at the time of Jesus' death. Do you see it? Do you see how Jesus' death was redemptive? He gave his life as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he, God, gave his only son so that anybody who believes in him could would not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his only son. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 26:53 when arrested that listen, I could instantly call and have 12 more than 12 legions of angels put at my disposal to rescue me. I don't need you, Peter. In Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Peter said Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan to have Jesus come. It was God's plan to have Jesus die. You remember what Isaiah 53.10 says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. And Jesus was willing So God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief so that sinners could be saved. But that's not all. Look at verse 48. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. When they observed what happened. I mean, one moment they're jeering and mocking and wagging their heads saying, why don't you save yourself? I think he's calling for Elijah to come rescue him. Let's see if Elijah comes. Oh, yeah. And this man claimed to be the Messiah. This man claimed to be the king. The moment Jesus dies, that very next moment, they're all beating their breasts in grief, in contrition. Because they've all come to the conclusion simultaneously that Jesus was innocent. C.S. Lewis made popular an argument called the trilemma. A trilemma is uh, the argument that Jesus was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Was Jesus a lunatic? Obviously not. If you look at the Gospels, he was smart, exceedingly smart. Well-spoken, kind, shows no signs of being crazy. His followers followed him diligently. After he died, they kept following him. They died for him. Surely he was not a lunatic. Was he a liar? Hardly. He always spoke the truth. Even his enemies came to him and said, We know that you are a teacher and that you speak the word of God in truth and you don't show partiality to any man. And he always spoke the truth. He declared that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And his followers followed him even to his their deaths after he died. So obviously he told the truth. Well, that only leaves one option. Jesus was who he claimed to be, which is Lord. He was the Lord. 
We don't know how much those observe peace together. The centurion seemed to realize it. The repentant thief realized it. But at least they realized Jesus was innocent. When Jesus died, it was as if an atom bomb of grace just detonated. People were just being blown into heaven all around him. And just rippled out. And the fallout has, is still saving men today. It made the thief say, remember me. And Jesus to reply, today you will be with me in paradise. It made the centurion say, surely this man was innocent. Surely this man is the son of God. And praise God, like Samson, who in his final moments of life did more to defeat the Philistines than his whole life. So Jesus, in his death, did more to save sinners than the 33 years combined. Because it was at that moment he made atonement for sin and grace exploded forth from the cross. Look at verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. We can go to Luke 8 and remember when it says that these women followed him. It gives, I think, four or five names of the women who went with him. And it says, and many others. You know, just Luke is the only one that mentions these women. They're just kind of in the background. There's a lot of people following Jesus around and they're still following around. And all these women are there now. His mother, Mary Magdalene, are two prominent ones. His disciples have probably slunk back. At one point, we know the Apostle John and Jesus' mother were at the foot of the cross because Jesus did the same, behold your, your son, behold your mother type of thing. But now they're all standing at a distance. And you know what they're watching? The sky grow dark. And it just darkness descending upon the land. They go, wow. And then this, just as Jesus dies, this huge earthquake. And if they could have run over to the temple and looked, they would have seen the temple curtain torn in two. All of these things made them realize, in addition to these signs, Jesus' own testimony of, of being so gracious to those who are killing him, of saving the repentant thief, and the conversion of the centurion, who at the moment of Jesus' death says, He was innocent and begins to praise God. They're observing all of these things. But there is one person out of all these groups that sticks out among all the rest. It is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's only mentioned in the Gospels in relation to Jesus' burial. And man, he is a fascinating figure. I mean, he's not the main point of the text, but he's a, a guy you want to model your life after. I just looked through the text. I I saw eight specific statements about Joseph of Arimathea that teach us important things. I'm just going to race through them. I wasn't going to cut it out, but I just thought I cannot do this. This This is worthy of study. When you look at the other gospels and you consider the implications of some of these statements, then the list gets bigger than eight. But let me just give you a quick eight point shot, a profile of Joseph of Arimathea. If you look at verse 30 or verse 50, it says a man named Joseph who is a member of the council. Stop there. What council? The Sanhedrin. Now, if you remember earlier on, it said all of them agreed. The whole Sanhedrin that Jesus was guilty. So you go, well, uh, was he there? No. He either said, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to show up to the secret trial and I'm not going to play your game. It's going to be your own thing, not me. Or they just didn't 
tell him that they were meeting and betraying Jesus because they knew he was against it. We don't know. But he wasn't there. Neither was Nicodemus, another ruler of the Jews. Because he also would have stood up against it. But this tells us he stood up for the truth among his peers. That is an admirable quality. Especially when all your peers have a different view. Secondly, verse 50 in the middle of the verse says, Joseph was good and righteous. He had not consented to their plan of action. So he was good. He was righteous. He wasn't a religious hypocrite. He wasn't one of these Jews who was pretending to be one thing, but really another. He was actually who he was, good and righteous. He actually worshiped God in the temple. He wasn't using his position to scam people and rob people. He wasn't saying, oh, everything I've had has been given to God so he didn't have to honor his parents. He was good. He was righteous. Third, the middle of verse 51 says he was a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews. And we don't know where this city is. It's unknown. This could be a reference to the location of where he was born and grew up. Or Arimathea could be a place near Jerusalem. But one thing we know, since he was on the ruling council, he lived near Jerusalem. He was a spiritual leader and he helped lead the nation. Four, towards the end of verse 51, we learn that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he had messianic hopes and couldn't wait for the kingdom of God to come. Now, this is something you learn. Whenever you talk to somebody, you say, yeah, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. And they say something like, uh, I'm not quite ready for that to happen. That's because they're living in sin. People who live in sin don't want Jesus to come back in glory, dealing out retribution to those who do not obey him. They say, well, I hope it's off in the future a little bit. You know, after I grow really old. The people who love the Lord... They think about Jesus coming back all the time. They can't wait to be with Jesus. And that's who Joseph was. Not only that, fifth, verse 52 goes on to tell us that this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Mark 15, 43 says he had to gather up courage to do it. It was a bold step. Why? Because in doing this, he would be declaring allegiance to Jesus, saying that Jesus was innocent, and making that public And that very day, that very morning, Jesus was sentenced to death and executed. So he was putting his life on the line to give Jesus a proper burial. 6, verse 53, and he took it, that is the body of Jesus, down. This was no fun thing. To go up, to get a ladder, to climb up there. To grab hold of the body of Jesus and get a a hammer and beat the nails back and forth as they're driven through Jesus' hands and feet and try to take him down off the cross without dropping him on the ground when he's all battered and bleeding was Passover. Volunteering to touch a corpse, he would have to be unclean, according to Numbers 19.11, for seven days. Unable to worship in the temple that year for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He would make a huge religious sacrifice. Numbers, I think, 9 says that he could, uh, somebody who touched a corpse could celebrate it you know, by themselves. I think a month later, or two months later, something like that. But he'd miss out when everybody was in town. But he took that step. He sacrificed being able to worship that year when everybody was there. 
so that he could serve Christ. Seven, look towards the beginning of verse 53, where we learn that Joseph wrapped the body of Jesus in a linen cloth. I mean, Luke greatly understates the matter. For Jewish burial, what would have had to happen is he would have had to take the body of Jesus down and clean it all. Well, Jesus' whole body is just beaten to a pulp. His face is swollen and lacerated and beat beyond recognition. He's got this crown of thorns pounded onto his head. He's going to have to pull that off. He's going to have to wash his body with all those lacerations and the big spear wound in his side. He's going to have to wash him all off. And then um, he's going to have to prepare him for burial. And so, you know, when it says it wrapped him in cloths, that is just a huge understatement. The Apostle John explains in John 19, 31 through 34, that this was really um, something that had to be done quickly because Passover uh, and Sabbath was approaching at sunset. It says, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, that's preparation for the Passover, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You'd break the legs, they'd, they'd die quickly. The thieves up there. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and immediately blood and water came out. So to make sure Jesus was dead, he was run through with the spear. He was given a mortal wound. It would have been mortal if he was alive, but he was dead. So it couldn't have killed him any more than he already was killed. But it verified that he was dead and water and blood came out, which would be expected. John goes on to say in John 19, verses 38 through 40, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, John 3, um, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. These are burial spices. A hundred pounds is a lot. I mean, you can, you know, spices, they're not that heavy. We're talking a lot of spices. And uh, linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Well, what would happen at that time, at the burial custom of the Jews is you get a cave or carve out a rock or make some sort of a stone structure. You put a bench in there. When somebody dies, you wash off the person's body. Then what you do is you begin to wrap them in linen wrappings and spices. You make a paste of the spices. And the spices then were pasted on and more linen and more spice and more linen. And you would keep doing these alternating spice and spice, spreading spices and putting linen until you basically put them in a mummy. You created a mummy. And this was for a couple person, purposes to kind of preserve the body. And also it was so that it wouldn't reek so bad. Because what would happen is, after you left them in the tomb about a year, you'd then go back the next year after they're all dried out and decayed, and then you would pull off all the wrappings and all the spices, and you'd take what was left, and you'd break it up. 
fun job. And you'd break it up, and then what you'd do is you'd put it into a box called an ossuary box, which is about two feet long or so, about a foot or so wide, and, you know, 18 inches tall, something like that. An ossuary box, you'd put all the pieces, the bones, in the box. And then, usually, in these tombs, they were kind of community tombs for a family. So they would carve these other smaller holes into the walls, and then you would take the box of Uncle Bob, and you'd put him next to Aunt Margaret, who died three years ago. And so your whole family would have this tomb, and all of the boxes of all your relatives would be stacked up in these boxes. So they'd be kind of the decaying shelf, and then there would be the storage of the people. And so that's what was happening to Jesus. He was wrapped, and notice that they're, waiting, they're expecting him to be dead. I mean, if they thought he was going to rise again on Sunday morning, they would not be going through to all this expense and hassle, right? Because they'd say, well, man, why? Well, let's just put a cloth on him. He's going to be raised from the dead. They aren't having that discussion. They're not anticipating that. They think he's dead and gone forever. Matthew 27, verse 60 tells us Jesus' tomb was owned by Joseph, who most likely paid for the property, paid to have that tomb carved out of solid rock, and may have paid for the 100 pounds of burial spices, or Nicodemus could have. Uh, We don't know who paid for it. Nicodemus brought it. But obviously, these two men are working together. When they see Jesus is about to die... Joseph goes to talk to Pilate and Nicodemus gets the burial spices ready in the linen wrappings. As soon as he dies, they take him down and prepare him and get him in the, in the tomb before sunset. So they're working. They've planned this out. And then finally, in the middle of verse 53, it says, Joseph laid him, that is the body of Jesus, in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. So Matthew, Mark tell us a stone was rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. Matthew says it was a very large stone. And so all of this means that they went through great physical effort and expense and sacrifice to make sure they honored Jesus in his death. Now, so what is the profile? Here it is in just bullet points. Are you willing to stand up against your peers to support the truth in Christ? Can you be described as good and righteous? Are you willing to move or travel regularly so that you can be more involved in ministry? Do you eagerly anticipate the second coming of Christ and his kingdom Are you courageous for the Lord, willing to sacrifice your reputation and maybe even your life for Jesus? Are you willing to sacrifice personal comforts, get dirty and forego religious celebrations for the Lord? Are you willing to work hard, plan ahead and labor to meet ministry deadlines so you can serve others? And finally, eight, are you willing to sacrifice a great deal of time, energy and money for the Lord? That's what Joseph did. A great guy. A great guy to model our lives after. Then there's kind of this parenthetical note in verse 54. And it was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
That's why they were hurrying to get all the stuff done. And you can tell they must have thought about it and said, you know what, he's going to die. Let's get ready. And the Sabbath is coming and we don't want him laying out all night and the dogs eating him or hanging on the cross and have the birds peck on him. So let's let's deal with it. Our third point is that Jesus was buried for you. Look at verse 55. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Why does Luke mention this? Because this is Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus. There may have been others, but we know for certain it was them. Why, why does he mention this? For this reason. It was necessary that Jesus have a witness that he was actually dead. And so what, what Luke is doing is he's accumulating information to let us know that Jesus did die, he was wrapped in the spices, and he was laid in the tomb, and the stone was put in front of there, and here's two more women who can verify to this fact. Joseph and Nicodemus were preparing the body And now the women were watching as witnesses and they saw exactly where Jesus was laying in the tomb. Verse 56 goes on to say, and they returned. Turned where? To their houses. And they prepared spices and perfumes. Well, he said, well, I thought it was was the Sabbath. It was. Um, They waited until after the Sabbath. It goes on to say, and on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So what it says is they returned to their house. The Sabbath began, they rested until the next evening, which would have been Saturday evening, the beginning of the first day of the week, our Sunday. And then they prepared probably that evening and really early in the morning more burial spices for one of two reasons. Either uh, Nicodemus and Joseph were not able to finish it completely or they just wanted to honor him more. Because the more spices you had was kind of the more honor that a person received. And so they were preparing. And so they were going to come back on Sunday morning to further prepare Jesus' dead body. They are not expecting at all that Jesus is going to be risen from the dead. They are totally blinded to this fact. They're coming to further prepare the body. But for the meantime... It's the Sabbath, and so they rest according to the commandment. So Jesus was dead, wrapped with many linens and spices, laid in a tomb with a very large stone sealing the entrance. In addition to all of that, just to make sure he's extra guarded. You know, usually don't guard dead men, but in this case it happened. Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66 says this. Now on the next day... The day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, this is so cool. It says, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And uh, along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, this is what's cool about this. The people who believe in Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, the people who follow Jesus, the people who told Jesus told over and over again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be crucified and resurrected on the third day. Those people are clueless. 
Remember we talked about how God blinded them from the truth? They are totally clueless. They have no idea. I mean, look at the women. They're not thinking, oh, he's going to be resurrected. They're bringing more spices to further cocoon him. It's over. He's dead. He's gone forever in their mind. The believers, the unbelievers are saying, now, he said he was going to rise from the dead. What's interesting is God lets them understand what Jesus is saying so that they will do what they did to make the resurrection extra definitive and certain. Because no one can say, listen, the disciples snuck in at night when the Romans were sleeping very carefully got this very huge stone and moved it out of the way without a sound. And then they snuck away Jesus' body. And in the morning, the guards woke up and said, oh, it's, he's gone. No, that could never happen. Why? First of all, it says they put a seal on the stone. Whenever you put the seal on the stone, that was a seal of Rome. And if you ever messed with that seal, it was like an assault, an attack on Rome itself. So anybody who did that would be saying, I defy Rome, and they would be executed. Roman soldiers were prepared to do battle, to defend six square feet of ground, like right where they're standing. If they were to fall asleep on duty, they would be executed. No one fell asleep. No one fell asleep. So we have the huge stone. We have the seal. And soldiers standing there upon pain of death to guard the dead man. Now others have said, well, Jesus actually didn't die. He fainted on the cross. And then they took him down and he woke up in the tomb. Yes, it's true. He was beaten severely. And yes, it's true. He was scourged. And yes, it's true. He was crucified. And yes, he did have the spear shoved through his side. And yes, he was wrapped in 100 pounds of linens and spices. However, in spite of all that, he broke free in his mortally wounded state because of the dampness of the tomb revived him. He rolled this huge stone away and snuck away without anybody noticing. No. No, that's not what happened either. He was dead and in the tomb. And he died and was guarded in the providence of God in that way. So you could be extra confident that not only did he die for you, but when he gets resurrected... That he will be resurrected for you. We'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. This morning when I was going over my sermon notes and doing a little praying. I thought well I'll read morning and evening just for fun. Spurgeon's devotion. It had a really good one. April 10th. Let me read it to you. The hill of comfort is the hill of Calvary. The house of consolation is built with the wood of the cross. The temple of heavenly blessing is founded upon the riven rock, riven by the spear which pierced his side. No scene in sacred history ever gladdens the soul like Calvary's tragedy. 
Is it not strange the darkest hour that ever dawned on sinful earth should touch the heart with softer power for comfort than an angel's mirth? That to the cross the mourner's eyes should turn sooner than where the stars of Bethlehem burn. Light springs from the midday midnight at Golgotha. And every herb of the field blooms sweetly beneath the shadow of the once accursed tree. In that place of thirst, grace was, has dug a fountain which ever gushes with waters pure as crystal, each drop capable of alleviating the woes of mankind. You who have had your seasons of conflict will confess that it was not at Olivet that you found comfort, nor on the hill of Sinai, nor on Tabor, but Gethsemane, the Praetorium, and Golgotha have been a means of comfort for you. The bitter herbs of Gethsemane have often taken away the bitters of your life. The scourge of the praetorium has often scourged away your cares. And the groans of Calvary yields us comfort rich and rare. We never should have known Christ's love in all its heights and depths if he had not died. Nor could we guess the father's deep affection if he had not given us his son to die. The common mercies we enjoy all sing of love just as the seashell when we put it to our ears whispers of the deep sea whence it came. But if we desire to hear the ocean itself, we must not look at everyday blessings, but at the transactions of the crucifixion. He who would know love, let him retire to Calvary and see the man of sorrows die. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for our text and what it taught us this morning. How we are able to see grace come forth from the cross, from the death of Jesus, that at the moment of the greatest tragedy comes an explosion of grace dragging sinners into heaven. The thief, the centurion, and surely many of those who were watching. And some of those probably being convicted and not repentant yet would repent shortly thereafter at Pentecost when Peter would stand up and preach and thousands of Jews would come to faith. And Father, we glory in Jesus' death, a willing death. That he chose to die and you were pleased to crush him, putting him to grief for our sins. Father, as we look at Jesus' death, as we ponder, as we leave him in the tomb, dead, wrapped in linens and spices, sealed with a stone, sealed with the seal of Rome, guarded by soldiers. May we remember that he did all of this for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.